I think almost everyone in the room already had a chance uh, to hear uh, from Ayan Hirsi Ali in our opening uh, presentations. But now we have a real treat because instead of three minutes, we have an hour. And I hope that we'll have an opportunity for, I know we'll have an opportunity for questions and answers too from the audience. So please be thinking of things that you might like to ask. Uh, Ion is, is uh, a brave, indeed already heroic uh, figure, uh, famous and heralded uh, throughout much of the world, uh, of course infamous in part of the world as well. Uh, Nick Kristoff, uh, who will be here in a few days, wrote not long ago that she has managed to outrage more people in more languages in more countries, on more continents than any other writer in the world today. Uh, she was born in Somalia. She was raised in a strict Muslim family in an extended clan. She spent uh, her childhood not just in Somalia, but in Saudi Arabia and Kenya and Ethiopia uh, as, as well. Uh, and it was a childhood punctuated by not just a civil war, but by the horror, the unimaginable horror of genital mutilation at age five and brutal beatings. The one constant in her early life and childhood was the devout Islam of her mother, uh, under which uh, Ion became herself quite devout. She went to the Netherlands in 1992 as a refugee, fleeing from a forced marriage to a cousin whom she had never met. She learned Dutch, she went to college, and she entered politics. She denounced her faith just after 9-11. She was elected to the Dutch parliament, and she became an outspoken advocate for the rights of Muslim women in Europe, for what she calls the enlightenment of Islam, and we'll be talking about that with her this evening, and for security against what she perceived as an Islamist threat to Western societies. She probably became most well-known earliest, and she alluded to this earlier today as well, following the murder of her colleague, Theo Van Gogh, uh, with whom she made the movie Submission. Uh, as you may recall, if you read her, her or read about her or her first uh, book, Infidel, um, she, uh, it, w w the body of Van Gogh had a, a letter pinned to his chest, pinned with a knife, uh, addressed to Ion, indicating that she should be next. Her book, Infidel, became the number one bestseller in Europe. And her new book, which I commend to you and which is available in our bookstore, Nomad, which has just come out, and she's joining us really from the book tour, it's already been translated into many other languages, uh, is undoubtedly going to find similar circulation and probably similar, if not even greater, controversy. Nomad is a, a carefully chosen name. It describes her own journey, physical, spiritual, and emotional, from her childhood to Europe and then ultimately to the United States, which of course is now her home. She works now for the American Enterprise Institute. The AI was really 
responsible for her being able to get the necessary papers to come to this country. And she's also uh, recently established uh, the Ion Hersey Ali Foundation dedicated to fight crimes against women, including genital mutilation, forced marriages, and honor violence. I, I thought the way we might start our conversation is just to pick up on, on, on the three minutes earlier. And you, you talked about how uh, America is wonderful in the West generally, but particularly in the United States is, is, a com is competitive and can compete very effectively. Uh, I wonder how you think the West ought to compete with what you view as, as a threat from extreme Islam views. Oh gosh, where do I start? Um, I think that America is good at competition. If you take a number of Americans and say a number of Europeans, a number of Africans, a number of Japanese, a number of Chinese, and you tell them sell your product, I think Americans will be able to sell the product that they are selling to the largest number of people and convince them that this is a great product. Um, I quoted, I think it was Mitt Romney whom I had speak who said, you know, we were able to sell a brown liquid to millions and millions of people um, and convince them that, you know, this is, this is the best thing to drink. And at the time, he was talking about economic competition. But I thought, what if you, as Americans, were to compose your value system, um, individual freedom, rights, tolerance, equality between men and women, uh, liberal capitalism, you know, these values that underlie that, if you were to, to compose that and you were to start competing with the agents of radical Islam for the hearts and minds of millions and millions and millions of people who now identify themselves as Muslim, but who really know very little about Islam, who don't read the Quran, who ha it's only through transmissions of that message that they feel that they are Muslims, but they really haven't been confronted yet with an alternative set of ideas, with an alternative moral framework, with an alternative value set. We have been swindled into thinking that the values that Al-Qaeda embodies is only that of a fringe group. Um, men like bin Laden really don't belong to the mainstream. We've deluded ourselves into thinking that answers can only be found within Islam. And what we need to do is encourage Muslims to reform Islam. And both the external um, idea that, say, countries like Saudi Arabia want us to believe Islam means peace, we're not at war with you, don't go after our constituency and our own self-delusion that reform and change will come from within Islam have put us in a position where we are not even looking into what is it that the agents of radical Islam are saying? How much are the resources that they have? What do the agents, I remember when I was a little girl, 1985, 1986, I was only 16, 15, 16 years old, and I became radicalized. I joined and sympathized with the Muslim Brotherhood. But I lived in Kenya. There was no proximity to the Muslim Brotherhood. The person who introduced the ideas of radical Islam to me and my fellow students was one of us. She went to Mecca and Medina on a scholarship paid for by the Saudi government. 
she herself got brainwashed into thinking the way she got to think, and then she was replanted amongst us, and she was then introducing us to ideas about the difference between right and wrong, our obligations. She was telling us all about the hereafter, how we could become martyrs, how we belonged to a larger group of people called Ummah, how that was our family and how we needed to be loyal to them. She was making us conscious of what America was doing wrong, what Israel was doing wrong, all of this. And if you look at the radicalization process of every individual that we now see, whether it is the so-called homegrown terrorists or out there in Pakistan and Muslim countries, that can, you can identify that process of radicalization. Are we competing with them? Well, my, my sense reading Nomad is that you might argue that if we're competing, we have one hand tied behind our back. And, and you talk in, in the book that one of the most important things is education, yeah. but we can't just leave it to Muslim children and Muslim families themselves, and, and that we have to be much more aggressive in, in advocating our own views. And you, you, you argue that it's, you think, out of some kind of misguided politeness that we don't challenge the beliefs. Can you t talk more about that? And, 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 and that's a very hard thing, I think, for many Americans to do, especially being such a religious country. Yeah. Our, you know, it's a religious country. And I think there's almost a taboo of criticizing other religion. I got um, a wonderful opportunity this morning and yesterday at the Socrates Seminar to spend time with American students, and we addressed that question. Why is it that Americans are inhibited? Why are you not allowing yourselves to judge other religions by their merits and other ideas by their merits? And the entire class, and some, some of the classmates actually said, I'm uncomfortable thinking critically of Islam um, it's because in the way we are brought up, it is, it's become a part of the visceral system of every American. Do not judge other religions. Do not judge other cultures. And I understand where that comes from, and I think that is really a wonderful trait to have until you're confronted with a religious political movement that wants to replace your own value system with something that they consider more superior. I think then the time comes for competition. Then comes the time to say, oh great, do you think that your moral framework is superior to mine? Let's talk about it. But then, and this is where I think the word, and I use the word swindling very, very carefully, is that's when you get organizations coming out and saying, if you do that, if you subject Islam as a belief system to the same scrutiny that you subject to Christianity, to Judaism, to secular uh, political movements, then you are Islamophobic. You are racist. You are a xenophobe. You're not a xenophobe. If you think through the concept of jihad, you're not a xenophobe if you think through the concept of informal fatwas where every male Muslim has the obligation to command right, at least what he thinks is right, and to forbid wrong. In other words, you have in every male Muslim a policeman who punishes you when, you think you've done, when he thinks that you've done something wrong. Then there comes a time to start competing with these ideas for the hearts and minds of millions and millions of human beings 
who now think of themselves as, as Muslims, but if they were to find other alternative ideas, might change their mind. All we have to assume is that the individual Muslim can change his or her mind. I changed my mind. I know several who have done that, and change starts in small steps. You even, we, in a conversation with, we had the other day, you were talking about even the role that is not being played by many NGOs or Western foundations when they're providing aid to yeah. some of these countries. You, you contrasted the process that's followed by the Saudis, for example, yes. who say, yes, we'll build this road, but we're gonna, in, in, in return, we're gonna expect your children to go to these madrasas and, and follow these particular precepts. We don't do that. And you, you, you believe that our aid should be conditional on changes in the schools and changes in the um, mores? I, yeah, given, given the context in which for instance, a country like Saudi Arabia, this was published, this is a paper published by the CIA in, 19, in 2003. They found that between 1973 and 2003, these are the decades that America and Europe were engaging in moral relativism, in multiculturalism, in self-doubt, who are we, we were all wrong, white guilt, these are the decades. In those decades, Saudi Arabia was investing a lot of money, not only in Saudi Arabia, but all over the world and in the West in promoting their ideas, their value systems. Call it Islam, call it Wahhabism, call it Salafism. I don't care what you call it, but it wasn't the Bill of Rights. It wasn't the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so where you have the resources, you have the ideology, and you have the agents, the message is carried to millions and millions of people and it's taking root and people are acting on it. We act shocked. We say, oh my God, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? Because we were looking away all this time and for decades people were being told hate us. So if you look at that, if you look at the effort that wealthy Muslims put into convincing human beings out there accept our moral system and give charity with strings attached. We will build you that clinic if you become a Muslim. If you are already a Muslim, we will give you even more if you become a Wahhabi Muslim. And you compare to the amount, just in sheer numbers of money and agents that the West has sent out to the developing world with no strings attached. You can keep your culture you can keep your religion, you can keep your value system, we'll bring you the condoms, we'll build you the roads, we'll build you the clinics, we'll talk about malaria, but we're not going to talk about values. And if we talk about values, the minute you take offense, we are going to withdraw talking about values, but keep offering you the same help. Then I think you get into a situation where um, even the money from Western countries is used to promote values that are anti-American, that are anti-Western, that are anti-universal human rights. Let, let's talk more about winning hearts and minds, which is what you think we should do. It's, right. it's our policy to do it. Your words in, in Infidel and especially in Nomad about Islam are themselves very hard words. You criticize it in terms that we've already discussed. We're really not accustomed to when people talk or write about another religion. 
calling many of its tenets, I mean, for example, you, you, you describe its tenets about women as, as monstrous, its celebration of violence and the closing of minds. Might your very stridency and, and the words you use be in a sense you know, comparable to drone attacks and that they're, they're too hard and too threatening? Or, or, I mean, obviously you've carefully chosen these words and you think it's appropriate to describe the tenets of what had been your faith in those terms. Yeah. But might it, in fact, backfire to be as outspokenly critical of something that is so elemental to so many people? Well, I mean, you, let's take the drones. There are, uh, after the 11th of September, there was this whole debate about, okay, what should we do? And there was one school of thought that said, let's just you know, get rid of the radicals who are militant, who are violent by using drones. Let's get to, uh, how do we discover, you know, who's, how can we tell the difference between a militant Muslim and a non-militant Muslim? And to, in order to find that out, we use, among other services, the secret service. The military and the secret service, these, these are very, very, very expensive ways of, I'm not even talking about the moral side of the issue, but I'm just talking about the, just the sheer cost of keeping that up, trying to figure out who is the next radical Muslim who's going to harm us. Defining the problem as inherent in Islam and then targeting Muslims to think of something else was labeled strident radical, wrong, and I think by doing so, we leave the field, we give the agents of radical Islam a monopoly on that constituency, and that is a huge demography. Think about the fact that most Muslims don't really know what is in the Quran. Most Muslims have no idea what Muhammad said. Most Muslims are poor in the sense that they're trying to struggle to make a living. They only know what the agents of radical Islam tell them. And we are giving that small, small elite, that small slice of individuals who proclaim themselves as the leaders of Muslims, we are giving them that entire field. There's no competition with it. What we are also ignoring is that the individual Muslims who leave Muslim countries and come to the West and who through curiosity discover, for instance, Christianity or rational humanism and leave Islam. And those ex-Muslims, whether they're Christians or whether they're atheists like me, the fact that they have to live in fear and in hiding. So if, if you go, if you look at all of this, what you'll see is that what you, some of you might think is stridency, radical, that it does indeed lead to people thinking about, do I want freedom or do I want submission to the will of Allah? As a woman, do I want to be the driver of my own destiny or do I want to depend on guardians, be they my father or husband or so on, to define for me what my life is? Do I want to invest in a life here on this earth or do I want to invest in life after death? that those individuals who reach a conclusion that is freedom, life, equality, tolerance, live in hiding, 
are persecuted are a small minority and have to face consequences that the other group doesn't have to face. That is something that encourages me to tell you, all of us, let's compete. So you think Let's spread that message of freedom, tolerance, equality. And you think those messages can be, can be carried by Christians and Jews and Hindus effectively. And feminists. And feminists. Well, we'll come back to the, the feminist and, and how, because I know you write in Nomad with great disappointment about how the Western feminist movement had let down, in your view, Muslim women and have not done nearly as much. Is that out of this same kind of false multicultural concern? I think, yeah, I think feminists also have succumbed to the idea that the notion of equality between men and women and equal rights before the law between men and women is something that is Western. White man is the oppressor he oppressed the black man, the colored man, he was the imperialist, etc., etc. So the only man really whose sexism you should target and whose prejudices you should target is that of the white man. There are many feminists who have succumbed to that. There are other feminists, men and women, who feel that the only way that they can help women in developing countries or women from developing countries is only by zooming in on the social economic variables but not discussing the convictions, the, the principles. Cult, the culture. And the culture. And by ignoring culture, you're ignoring the fact that these convictions are convictions that are going to be passed on from one generation to the next generation. My grandmother, who mutilated me, was convinced that I would not get a husband once I became of age. So her conviction was, if I don't do this, I'm breaking with tradition She's not going to have a husband, and I'm therefore not giving enough love, love as defined in her way. What my grandmother didn't realize, and what, say, the feminists, there were no Western feminists who got in touch with my grandmother, but if as a Western feminist you were to have a conversation with my grandmother, you would convince her, oh, but women no longer need to be virgins in order to be married. They no longer need to depend on husbands. They can work, they can have, you know, they can work for their own money. And in fact, in most developing countries, almost all the work is done by women. It's just that they're not paid for it and they're not recognized for it, but a lot of work is done. And it, it, it's creating that consciousness in women like my grandmother, that might have changed her mind. That might have changed her mind about, feminists might have started telling Muslim women, women in developing countries, that all this focus on virginity is wrong, morally wrong, because it puts more weight on the hymen than on the human being. It creates a sick relationship between the female and the male, where the man is only convinced that he can be himself and a man and powerful if he controls the sexuality of, of, of women. So th th there are so many things that feminists could do, could have done, that they haven't done because they believe that doing so is ethnocentric and imposing their rights. And so that's one of the reasons that your voice is still a relatively lonely one. I mean, it's interesting, again, in your book and on our conversations, the reactions sometimes you get when you speak to college audiences and how frequently it's young Muslim women 
who object most strenuously to even your being there. Yeah. And, and, and you, you say that there are activist groups of every stripe, as there are on American campuses, yet nothing for girls fleeing Islam, no group fighting for the rights of Muslim women. And you say, and I'll quote you, even when Muslims blow up other Muslims who differ in their interpretation of a supposedly peaceful religion, even when children are used as suicide bombers, even when a devout Muslim woman is raped, goes to the authorities and is stoned for having sex outside of marriage, mm. even then students are silent. Why? Well, that is what fascinates me. So I talk to American students, American Muslims educated in elite colleges, and I confront them with these facts. And they seem to be more outraged by the fact that I am criticizing Islam or verses in the Quran, even naming them, and not at all perturbed by the women who are stoned, the women, there was at times, I mean, in one of the colleges I visited, it was at the time when Afghani women found the courage and had organized themselves to fight against the mullahs, and they were rounded up, and some of them were whipped, some of them were lashed, they were humiliated, they were put in jail, they were raped. And what were these Afghani women fighting for? They were fighting against two verses in the Quran. They were saying, we don't want to be beaten by our husbands, and we don't want our husbands to force themselves sexually on us. Now, both of these um, fights for men are in the Quran. The Afghani women were not mentioning the Quran. They were not criticizing the Quran. They were just saying, we don't want to be beaten. We don't want to be raped. The Muslim students in American colleges absolutely could feel no empathy with those women. They were far more outraged by the fact that I had mentioned these things, that these reports were in the New York Times. They were outraged by the fact that the media was reporting on it. They weren't outraged by the violation itself. They attacked me on the film submission that led to the murder of Theo van Gogh. I confronted them with the verses that I had written on the bodies of women. Again, they were far, far more outraged by the fact that I had deigned to take Quranic verses and written them on the surf on women than they were on what the verses said and the fact that those verses were put into practice. And I think that is something that as Americans, as Westerners, we have failed miserably in convincing these young minds. Young American minds. Young American minds. These are American citizens young American minds that they have, they, they are subscribing to a value system that comes to them. It comes in the campuses, Muslim centers, mosques, etc. online. The ideas of radical Islam are propagated, but somehow we have failed to caution them. Somehow we have failed to give them, to give them as a weapon individual critical thinking so that they can tell that imam or that authority figure from Islam who approaches them, I don't agree with you. And here's why I don't agree with you. We have somehow failed to give them those tools. You, you, you write and you speak with us about radical Islam. Why, why don't you talk more about moderate Islam? I mean, some critics would say that you're describing 
a, a Islamic culture that exists in Somalia, in Yemen, in Saudi Arabia, maybe Afghanistan, but not the, the, the majority expression of Muslim belief, not in Indonesia, not among moderates in most other countries, not among Muslims in Europe or Muslims in the United States. So mm -hmm. where, where are moderate Muslims in your view of all these issues? Well, first I would say it is wrong to presume that only because I am from Somalia or only because I have been exposed to radical Islam, uh, that that is something that is limited to Somalia. That is empirically wrong. The radical Islamic movement in Indonesia has been growing and really growing upwards from, the, say, the 1980s, but markedly so from the 1990s and so on. Take a country like Turkey, best friend of the United States, very friendly toward Israel. Was. Was. <laughs> Things are changing. Uh, but just look at, look at those developments. Look at countries like Malaysia, with three ethnic groups, where the ethnic Malayans were probably more modern and progressive in the 1970s than they are now. So that trend of more and more Muslims subscribing to radical Islam, having this civilizational awareness, considering themselves to be a part of a ummah that transcends And advocating borders. for Sharia law increasingly. And advocating for Sharia law increasingly is not something that is limited to Somalia. It's not something that I'm inventing. That's just the empirics as it is. Moderate Islam versus radical Islam. This is another self-delusion. We confuse moderate Christians with moderate Muslims. A moderate Christian is a Christian who knows, who says, comes out and says, things in the Bible that were written ages ago, I don't really take the Bible seriously. I mean, I'm inspired by the good things that Jesus did, but in my daily life, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't use the, the Bible as a manual. The, the, the individuals that we tend to think of as moderate Muslims are individuals that do not take the Quran as a manual. They don't practice it. They don't do everything that Muhammad, the founder of Islam, said that you should do. But intellectually, they've not confronted the Quran and the morality that is um, that's presented in the Quran. They've also not confronted the example that Prophet Muhammad has given. They're simply ignoring it. And that ignoring of these edicts of, of that moral framework is only for a period of time. And this is why so many, and I describe that in Nomad, so many Westerners come to me and say, how is it possible this guy was really, he was just one of us. He used to go out with us, he used to drink with us. Now, distances himself from us, no longer drinks, has a beard, and is attending these radical Islamic classes. What has happened to him? He was moderate, he is now no longer moderate. It is because he was before a passive Muslim who is not practicing the faith, and has been persuaded to become more active and to become someone who observes the faith. Now that doesn't mean he's necessarily going to be violent. 
but he, in, in a, he but still it means he subscribes to that. So moderate Islam is not the same as moderate Christianity. For me, a moderate Muslim is someone who, like Irshad Manji, looks at what the Quran says, looks at what the Prophet Muhammad says and says, I know all of this, I've taken note of it, but I choose my own morality and I will take from the Quran what I want and I'll leave behind what I don't want. And the number of, if you, if you, if you define moderate Islam as such, the number of Muslims who subscribe to that are very, very few. Yeah, and I, persecuted. I think it actually was Tom Friedman uh, who wrote in one of his columns once that uh, of course there are many heinous practices revealed in Leviticus or the Old Testament and there are certainly very ugly chapters in Christian history and most religions history. But we now have you know, Judaism 3.0 and Christianity 4.0 or whatever. But for some reason Islam or for much of the Islamic world is still stuck in 1.0. Why is that? Um, you call for an enlightenment in Islam. But yeah. Well, that's why I gave up, I think, on this whole idea about Islam reforming from within. Because Islam has obstacles that Christianity didn't have and probably Judaism didn't have. Some of the students this morning and some of my fellow, um, my friends, Jewish friends tell me, Judaism is all about a struggle. The concept of God is one that you fight with, you argue with. Um, and Jews don't proselytize. They don't go to other people and say, become Jews. So that already gives the Jewish population, puts them in a completely different situation where you have a congregation of why well, you people who are continuously quarreling and fighting and asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been to my synagogue, I think. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to your synagogue, <laughs> but if what I'm promoting is, if what, I, what I'm trying to promote is critical thinking, question God. So if you already have a whole congregation of critical thinkers, then things will look different. The, the concept of a God or in, within Christianity, when I came to the Netherlands, but also before I came, even in Kenya, Jesus Christ is presented as a figure who died for us and our sins and a figure of love, and then his creator is a father. So you have, these are benign figures. I almost want to say Jesus Christ is, from what I know of established Christianity, he's a very cuddly figure. <laughs> uh, long hair, flip-flops, walked on water, <laughs> saved people. Um, and there's one, again, in one of our seminars this morning, I think it was a girl from Serbia who said, you know, as a Christian, and she's an Orthodox, if you sin, you will be punished. It is something between you and God, but your fellow Christians won't come and punish you. Now, if you take Islam, first of all, the concept of God is one of submission. You just have to bow and do as you're told. The Quran is full of explicit commands. And I look and I've struggled with trying to, to see, okay, I want to give the people who want to reinterpret the Quran a chance, but reinterpretation means you're going to twist God's explicit words and you're going to make them more obscure. And before you know, you've put God in a position where he's incoherent and really doesn't know what he wants to say. And take, for instance, the verse in the Quran that says, uh, beat your wife. There is an American Muslim who reinterpreted that to mean leave her. Well, beat is very explicit. 
but leaving her, I'm not sure is such a good idea, especially in Islam where divorce for men is really very breezy. You just bring in two witnesses, you say you're divorced, and that's the end of the story. So I'm not sure that interpreting the Quran is in any way improving the situation. And then there is no hierarchy. There's no, there's no such a thing as a church. Where in, within Christianity, first there's, for Catholics, there's the Catholic Church. But even for Protestants, you have all these different synods. You become members of these synods. And then as a congregation or as a community, you do what the leadership says. We don't have anything like that in Islam. All men are equal. So here you'll be mediating or you'll be conversing with this person who you think is an authority figure whose message you like, but there there is a bin Laden emerging and there there is an Anwar al-Awlaki who's suddenly an authority. And so you have anyone can call himself an authority and because of that state of anarchy where there is really no central figure for Islam who mediates between Muslims and whose spokesperson for Muslims, between Muslims and non-Muslims, that just doesn't exist. And the demography is expanding at a rapid pace. We're talking about one-fifth of the world population. Then I think seeking answers within Islam and waiting for that faith to reform itself is simply not a viable route to take. Competition, offering that demography other ideas, that might lead us to a better answer. Let, let's talk about a, a, a particular uh, political, practical issue that is now being faced by many countries and it's been controversial in Europe, and that's burqas and, and headscarves. Uh, in, your, in your book, you write of headscarves. You say, Muslim headscarves and burqas are, quote, gradations of mental slavery and marks of apartheid. Does that mean that the French are right to ban uh, certain kind of headscarves in schools, or are countries right to ban the, you know, the full burqa? Well, in, I supported the French banning the headscarf in school. And they didn't just ban the headscarf. They banned the cross, the kippah, the, what they call manifest religious symbols in school. But outside of the school compound, you can wear them again. Um, I also, as a member of parliament, when we were in, in the Netherlands, we had to look at, should we ban the face covering, yes or no? And I remember that we talked about the mask in the Netherlands. You're not allowed to wear a mask. You can't cover your face. And so some of the MPs said, instead of designing new legislation, let's just file it under the mask law, covering your face, masking your identity, so it's forbidden, even for religious reasons. There is the argument of security in a, uh, an era of terrorism, Islamic terrorism, where you're required, for instance, in airports, but also in places where large groups of people come together to identify yourself. There are CCTV cameras all over the place. I think it is not, before long, there is no way some of us will be able to cover our faces while some of us don't or are not allowed to. And so for, from a security perspective, I can imagine legislation being put into place saying the face covering is wrong. But from a moral perspective, I would rather that we engage with the women who wear these veils and point out 
what the Quran says about, what the Hadith, what their religion says about it, and their religion says, you as a woman must hide your beauty. Otherwise, men will get aroused and then will grope you, rape you, and if that happens, groping, the raping, the touching, or looking at you in a wrong way, another man will come, your brother, your father, whose honor is, um, is attacked or feels he's attacked, is going to go after that man. And before you know it, there's going to be a state of fitna or a state of war. So as a woman, prevent men, A, from their own sexuality, and B, from them taking revenge. And the best way to do it is to stay at home unless you have a reason to leave the house. If you need to leave the house, then completely cover yourself so that you don't attract attention to yourself, male attention to yourself. In other words, female sexuality has to be hidden. That is a conversation I think that we can have with Muslim women. Let's open it up to, to the audience. And uh, I don't know if we can get some lights or we need to get them down. It's hard, hard for me to see. Uh, but there's a woman right behind you, or a man, I can't even see, but I see an arm. Hi. <laughs> And if you could just stand oh, okay. and your name and a short question, please. A little hard to Oh, stand. you don't have to stand. I do okay. see a crutch. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here. Uh, thank you. That was a very, very interesting conversation. And I, I just uh, wanted to ask you, just try out a few thoughts on you. Um, I come from the women's movement and uh, for 20 years have been working in the international women's movement. And this has been one of the most difficult issues is how to support in a way that's practical and effective. And I have worked closely with many Muslim women and Muslim women's groups in many countries around the world. I've been, I've been asked, please don't raise this stoning of women in Iran or help me get the UN to raise that because if you raise it from the US, it will just make it worse. It really won't help. It will actually make it worse. And so we tend to listen to those voices and feel the frustration of, well, what can we do and try to find different avenues. And um, it's certainly my sense that within the movement of feminist Muslim uh, women, there's a heated debate about whether you can uh, find equality within the Quran or whether you have to reject the religion as a whole. It seems like a very sensitive issue. And it doesn't strike me that there's much of a place for women from outside that faith in that debate. That it, we all have those kinds of debates in our own contexts, and that that's a debate that you know, can go either way from an international point of view, and you can support women who believe both ways to try to promote equality. Um, and in, in many countries, even Somalia, it seems to me there are women uh, who are trying to, um, they're strong, and they believe in equality in the most fundamental human rights sense, but they have no voice and they have no power. And so it, it's a mistake, in my view, to look at other cultures and not recognize the same heterogeneous nature of the discourse in those cultures that we have here. We have many minority voices here that don't reflect the dominant discourse and yet um, are, are, are very indigenous. And so I guess what we have tried to do with issues like female genital mutilation and other sensitive issues that involve culture is to empower the voices of these women from the culture as opposed to come in in the way that, that I hear you may be suggesting 
with an American voice that may undermine the very work that we want to try to support them in, in doing. Mm -hmm. So I would just be interested in your thoughts about that. Certainly on FGM, I mean, just a few weeks ago, the American Association of Pediatricians came out with this outrageous idea that it would be fine. Maybe we should support the idea that young girls uh, or babies should be cut in a mild way. <laughs> and there was a huge outcry and they backed off. And, and you know, that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is to come in um, and uh, you know, disregard the kind of need for education and just try to ban something and criminalize it without listening to the voices of local women. So we always try to find that balance and I would never say that we've done enough or a good job, but I also think it's, it's quite difficult and some of, uh, of that kind of strident voice is fine when it comes from someone like you, but when it comes from someone of a different culture, it may actually undermine the work. Well, but I, I get there, I, there are a number of statements that I, I have had recurring, you know, come back. I want to respond, first of all, to um, is it, there's the we and they. If that is their culture, if that's their way of doing things, do you think that coming in with an American voice, the American way of doing things is effective? Because the elites, the people that you talk to, that you um, engage in getting through to the rest of the community tell you, this is not the right way to do it. You should do it in a different way. Think about the situation in Iraq and in Afghanistan. When Americans were told by the elite leadership, those people who consider themselves to be the spokespersons for Iraqis and Afghanis, if you invade, because you invaded Iraq or because you invaded Afghanistan, Afghanis and Iraqis will not go and vote. And we've seen over and over again when election booths are established that the population goes through rain, bad weather and good weather and they stand in long lines and the expatriates do the same thing even when they know that there's the risk of being bombed by suicide bombers and they stand in line and they vote. So the people who are telling you don't market your values to the population because they're going to consider you hegemonic, they're going to consider these values, you know, foreign and all of that, are saying that because they have an entrenched interest in the way things are. And that is why I promote, instead of speaking through mediators or self-appointed mediators, to reach out to the populations themselves. I also want to point out another thing that you've mentioned, which is, you know, it, there and here, that is no longer the case. We have five or six or maybe seven million Muslims living in the United States and more who want to come. There are 15 to 20 million Muslims in Europe and every year about a million people from Muslim countries make an attempt at getting into the European Union. There are thousands who apply for asylum or work permits in Australia. Thousands of others who want to go to Canada. So the number of Muslims leaving Muslim countries, Sharia-ruled countries who want to come to the West, 
are ever increasing. So there is that, that whole distinction between there and here no longer applies. And for every single Muslim who wants to come into the West, I've been through that process. You go through an interview with a Western civil servant with pages and pages full of questions. But I don't remember ever being asked. And all that I've translated for tons and tons and tons of Somalis who were seeking asylum in the Netherlands. I don't remember a single question, whether it was a visa applica application, an application to come and study, or an application for naturalization. I don't remember any question during those interviews that asked those individuals about the value system that they were leaving behind, the value system that they wanted to come in, and whether they really wanted to be a part of that. Let's go to the next question. Uh, in the third row. Wait for the microphone, if you would. David Cunyon from New York. Uh, six months ago at the Parliament of World Religions in uh, Melbourne, Australia, there was quite a bit of conversation about these issues and a lot of uh, women's groups, whether they were interfaith women's groups or in particular Muslim women's groups. And the sense I got at some of those sessions was that there's also a distinction between Saudi Arabian tribal culture that has been, along with the money and the roads and the madrasas, that has been expanded as they've tried to set this idea in place, and that although there may be one or two important verses in the Quran, there certainly are honor-killing verses in the Old yeah. Testament and that kind of thing, and, and my, my question is, in particular with honor-killing, the sense I've gotten is that that is less about Islam and much more about sort of tribal Saudi culture that's being sort of expanded throughout the Muslim world and that in places like Indonesia that, that it might be easier to be trying. I mean, pe people could deal with people with head cloths much like they feel comfortable with, with a, a woman in Brooklyn who's wearing a wig if it wasn't that there's also this huge misogyny about people who are in Buffalo able to chop off their wife's head when they're upset, you know, because they're bringing on this sort of tribal Saudi uh, uh, mentality on top of what's being taught as, as Islam. And isn't there an ability within Islam to sort of say, clearly, you know, if, if a woman wants to be discreet, that's fine, but, but we, can, we can all agree that chopping off someone's head, you know, because you're upset with your wife is not the, the you know, is something that within the modern world, I, I think that's something that you could get huge groups of Muslims to agree to. Uh, well, and in the West, if you're upset with your wife, what do you do? You take away her credit card? <laughs> yeah. You will get large numbers of Muslims who will not behead their wives because they're upset with her. But if you want to discriminate, if you want to make a distinction between, say, Arab culture, Saudi Arabian culture, and Islam, you're going to have a hard time. Islam was founded by an Arab man in Mecca. And what was that culture is a great deal of what has been elevated to become religion. And if you look at what is in the Quran, what is in the Hadith, the sayings that the Prophet Muhammad left behind, you will find a great deal of similarities between the way Arab peoples live. 
It is Arab, Islam is Arab culture. Islam was founded in an Arab setting and that has expanded and has been spread to the rest of the world. Unless, I mean, I'm an atheist and I can say that now and I can't talk to some Muslims who say no, Islam is after its founding, it's very different from what Arabs want and, it's, uh, and, and there's, you know, there's Islam as, uh, as a religion, as a message from God, the one and only, and then there is Arab culture, and the two have nothing to do with one another, and actually Arabs have contaminated uh, the true religion. I don't agree with that position. I think it's more plausible to accept the fact that Islam is Arab culture, and as it's spread through the centuries to other cultures, it's been diluted by other cultures. But essentially, it is Arab culture. In Arab culture, and in tribal culture, even when it's not Arab, the me mechanisms of honor and shame reign. And within the family, that the relationship between the two sexes is one of honor and shame, in which case the behavior of the females invites shame, and the man can get rid of that shame by punishing the women who have shamed the family and then regaining honor. So yes, you can say, does the Quran say, permit honor killings? No. Does the Quran say, flog the adulterer and the adulteress? Yes. If you read the hadith, you get more precise instructions and the procedure of doing it. And the hadith will tell you, assuming that there is a Sharia state, that the adulterer and the adulteress should be flogged if they have had sex before marriage, should be stoned if they've had sex after marriage, that there's a whole way of proving it with four witnesses, etc. And it's always so much easier to prove the fact that women have had sex and uh, men can deny it. But even if that were not the case, even within Sharia, there are injunctions that say if the family, if the brother or the father decides to kill the indecent woman, then that's his discretion. That is also part of Sharia. And so we can go on and on to say, let's separate what is Arab and Arab culture. What is Islam? And you're going to get in a twist. Let's continue with some other questions. Yes, yeah. in the back. Yes. So if, the, if we accept the notion, I, and I, I agree with you, that, that much of the foment of this religious fundamentalism uh, comes out of Saudi Arabia, uh, and they have the resources from selling oil to us to do that, and they're, uh, they're encouraging people to uh, move forward with a society that is antithetical to ours, should we not be at war with Saudi Arabia? I mean, why, are, why do we consider them our allies and have their kings come and hang out with our presidents and, and we, we talk, treat them as our allies, but in fact, they may be our greatest enemies? And what is your thought on that? Well, uh, we are in conflict with Saudi Arabia and there is uh, the factor of oil. We depend, America depends on 
um, oil on resources from the region. And that obviously puts the foreign policy in a different context. And I don't really think that war is where you should begin. Wars are expensive. And once you invade a country, then the next thing is, as you've noticed in both Iraq and Afghanistan, you don't merely leave. You don't merely defeat and then leave. You've got to get into the business of nation building. And that's, again, a very expensive way of doing things. What we haven't explored is competing with the message that the Saudi government, and not only the Saudi government, the Kuwaitis, United Arab Emirates, all these wealthy, say, either individual Muslims or Muslim states are promoting. The organization of Islamic conference that met recently after the flotilla incident in Jeddah, where Iran has a sitting, even though if you read Western newspapers, you're going to go away with the impression that Saudis and Iranians never talk because they are Sunnis and Shias and they're more at war with one another than they are at war with us. So that is only partially true. If you look at the organization of Islamic Conference on a state level, they are united in the objective of promoting Islam and not just Islam as prayer and religion, but as a political system, Sharia, the introduction of societies that accept Sharia, various forms of Sharia, communities, Muslim communities within the West that adopt Sharia. And you get delegations from these countries coming to the EU, coming to the White House, coming to individual countries and telling them what they should think about Islam, how they should respect Islam, why they should not draw cartoons, etc., etc. If you look at that, and you see their message, it becomes more and more clear that they represent a coherent set of values derived from Islam and promoted in the name of Islam. And I wish that we could, if we only understood that, we could, and, and some of us do, we could compose a counter message. And instead of respecting their religion as they want us to, we'll say, why don't you respect the individuals that you are trying to target freedom to choose. You promote your message and we will promote our message and let the audience decide what message they want to follow. That would be the best way to go about it. Over here, gentlemen. Howard Gardner, I'd like to pursue that because I think the idea of, of competition of ideas, of narratives is a good one and it's a lot less expensive than new crusades. But you've talked about it in two very different ways. On the one hand, you talked about teaching critical thinking, you call yourself a rationalist, and almost all of your examples were very reasoned. But then this afternoon and again early tonight, you talked about selling it the way that we sell Coca-Cola. And of course, those are very irrational. Those are playing to the hearts, the emotions in ways which may be more effective with people. Um, so I'm, I'd like to know where do you come down on the, the, you know, the details of the message and how it should be conveyed? I think it's both. It's not just the rational, and you will find within Islam individuals who are seeking, um, who are seeking a narrative, a moral discourse uh, by way of reason by comparing different 
religions, different frameworks, and then coming to a conclusion, I want to be a rational humanist, and I think this is how life should be, or I want to be a Muslim, and I think this is why I became a Muslim, etc. But that group in humanity, and we know from human history, is always a small group. Most people come to their convictions through emotions, through sentiment, through appeals, through something, associations, peer pressure, etc. And, and my position right now is the less expensive way and probably more effective way of defeating radical Islam, of defeating Islam. Let me drop radical. I'll drop the qualifier. Of defeating Islam is not through drones and diplomacy and soft power and all of these things that we're talking about that might work in the long run. But in the short term, it's probably more effective if we do both ways. Those individuals who are rational-minded can come to John Locke and John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith sooner than we think if we take it to them. The other group who are e more easily persuaded through sentiment and emotions and peer pressure and just great associations, um, we can do it through those means. But either way, the message, the American message, is, I find, more preferable. And I want to use the word superior, even though that is something that all of you in this room have been conditioned not to think, uh, than uh, the message and the narrative for life that Islam offers. Time for two more quick questions. Here in the third row. And I'm interested in your vision of um, how we would sell this message, particularly because the American ethic and the feminist ethic is so based in autonomy. Um, I, I'm interested to hear how, how we could sell the message without of equality and justice, without an underlying fundamentalism, quite frankly, in autonomy. Um, well, if fundamentalism means confidence in the idea, you feeling confident that the ideas of autonomy, the idea of tolerance, the idea of science and rationality, and life on this earth, say you are born and you lead a healthy, prosperous life of wellness and you die peacefully in your bed at say about the age of 90 plus, that, yeah, that kind of a discourse, if you feel, if you're confident that that is superior to a life that begins only after death, requires martyrdom, requires all sorts of things that make life on earth miserable, then it's not fundamentalism. It's, it's just a sense of you are confident that what you believe, if you compare it to that other belief system, is better, it's more superior. And I think we did this in, during the Cold War there was Radio Free Europe, but it wasn't only Radio Free Europe. There was a great deal of propaganda and discussion that was open about why the ideas of Karl Marx, if put into practice, would lead to a Stalinist regime. What we are doing now is, when it comes to Islam, we are condemning the symptoms. We're condemning the terrorism, the misogyny, we're condemning 
the fact that gay rights are trampled upon, we are condemning despotism. But we're not talking about the origins of those ideas, the convictions that are given from generation to generation. So if you compare it with communism, it's like saying, okay, let's say the five-year plan is really a bad, it's really a bad outcome. Don't do the five-year plan. But Karl Marx is holy, and he's a man who should be respected and whose pictures you cannot draw. And the works of Karl Marx, like the Communist Manifesto, is an elevated book. And everything it contains is holy, and we should respect it. That is the way we are treating Islam. And we have, the West has been confronted with terrible ideas in the past and ideologies, and the only way, now this is, it wasn't the only way. There were military, there was the military side of it, there was the secret service, there were other, there were other components to that conflict and to those old conflicts. But the most effective conflict, the most lasting one, was the competition. These ideas, Nazism was bad. It was proven to populations, starting with the Germans, why it was bad. Communism was proven in the same way. This is the idea. If implemented, this is the outcome. Today, with Islam, we're only condemning the outcome. Question over here. Gentleman here. Uh, Antoine van Akmaal, as someone who grew up in the Netherlands, I was fascinated uh, reading your book and, and, and really quite uh, impressed with your courage. Um, and, and still, as I was reading this, there was something that kept nagging me. And that was, and, and you, the, the examples you gave were very believable and concrete and very specific. And still there was this nagging feeling. Were there things, I mean, you were a devout Muslim, were there things that today, you would say in Islam that are still appealing to you, that are still that that you feel sen sense of sympathy with even today. What what would those values be, if there are? Oh, well, I still feel the the question is what are the values within Islam that you still have a that you still value that you th you still think of positively. I think uh, if if you take for all, those of you who are familiar with Islam. If you are to divide Islam, um, say, the chapters that were revealed to Muhammad, I can't really talk in terms of revelation, it doesn't seem serious, but anyway, let's assume they were revealed to Muhammad. The chapters that were revealed during his period in Mecca, there's a lot of greatness in there. There's, uh, he, he, preached, uh, he preached generosity, he preached hospitality, he preached uh, that the rich should take care of the poor. He preached a lot of good things that are universal and that we all believe in. If you take his revelations in Medina, that is when Sharia law is devised and starts to evolve when the concept of jihad uh, develops, when even in, in some ways genocidal activities are the Jews, the Jewish tribes are completely um, uh, you know, annihilated their property taken, their women become slaves or concubines of Muslims. It is during that period, Islam as it evolved after Medina, that I have a quarrel with, and I think that you all have a quarrel with. But for a true Muslim who believes that you cannot change anything in the Quran, and that the latter chapters in Medina abrogate the earlier chapters in Mecca, 
that is when you really get into, uh, into trouble. And even if you don't, even if we were all to you know, go down the path of trying to reform Islam only through reinterpreting scripture, I just think, again, and I repeat it, it is, it's not a viable strategy because we are talking about one-fifth of the world population, 80% of whom are probably under the age of 25. There is a youth bulge. People want jobs. They want to channel that energy into something. And right now they have agents telling them to channel it into martyrdom. You can't wait until Islam evolves and goes through years of enlightenment, years of reformation, and comes to the same point where we are now. If we want to do it that way, then we have to pay the price of going back centuries ourselves. I don't know if you want to pay that price. Ian, let me just ask one last uh, uh, personal question. Uh, in, in, in your books, you describe the influence of your mother, who obviously had enormous influence in your, in your early years, inspired your own devotion uh, to Islam. What is your relationship with her like today? My relationship with my mother is very, um, I almost want to say there is no relationship in the sense that there's no connection. We have telephone conversations. I described some of those in Nomad, where my mother just, she's, in my perspective, a terrified old woman. She's terrified of hell and the hereafter and what's going to happen after we die. And so all she can tell me is, please, come back to Islam, because if you don't, pretty soon you're going to die, we are all going to die, and you're going to burn in hell. And I can't say what I really want to say because I don't want her to hang up on me, which is to say, oh, mom, quit. There is no hell, there's no hereafter. These are just all, you know, this is all nonsense that is used to terrify elderly women like you. <laughs> Life is on earth now, you have a few more years left. Let's leave it, uh, you know, by the day, by the minute, and let's have a proper, proper relationship. And so in that sense, my mom and I are completely disconnected. Ladies and gentlemen, Ayan Hirsi Ali, thank you very much. Thank you.